Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump as if he needed translation. We take a look at the serious matters facing America. We confront serious, consequential, existential threats to our country. The border is one of them. The border is one of them. It's about sovereignty. On today's show, we'll have Joel Farkas. He's the director of the American Strategy Group and a favorite of yours and mine. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel is going to shed light on the left's continued attack on the American middle class. American middle class is the bulwark of America. And if you take down the middle class, you're really hurting this country. And we'll hear from our friend Conrad Black, Lord Black, author and non-affiliated member of the House of Lords. He will share his sense of 2019. And we're going to ask him not to look at America so much as America in the world, its resurgence. Uh, and is it good for the rest of the world or bad? So let's talk about uh, the upcoming conversations. Uh, tour de force, as usual, with Conrad Black. Mm-hmm. He's just so smart and so cosmopolitan, the true meaning of the word, man of parts, man of the world. Right. American resurgence and Trump and America, good for the world, not bad for the world. You know, you asked him a question in that interview, you know, what does he read? What does he watch to stay current on things? And I think everybody listening may want to know, what do you read or watch to stay current on what's happening? Well, as you know, when we did the radio show, I used to have in the car. USA Today, Washington Post, the New York Times, right. the Wall Street Journal, and some sports things. <laughs> <laughs> right. I no, I don't do it anymore. I don't. I don't. I still read the Post, the Times, but I do mm-hmm. what Conrad does, which is go to Real Clear Politics. One of the first things in the morning. They have a really good, first kind of lineup. Is and yeah. it's balanced. It's, yeah, it is. Stuff mm-hmm. from the left, stuff mm-hmm. from the right, but it's the best kind of thoughtful opinion. And I watch TV. It's on all day. While I'm reading, while I'm working, while I'm working out at the gym. And I go from Fox to CNN to MSNBC to, you know, around. So I get three different versions of the same event sometimes, <laughs> diametrically opposed. It really yeah. is a balkanized media now. It really is. But I, I find Fox to be the fairest. I really do find it to be the most fair and balanced. It's their motto. I think they come much closer to that than uh, CNN or MSNBC. I'm finding that MSNBC is almost more fair than CNN now, which is odd. I mean, CNN's on a rampage. Mm -hmm. They're on a tear. They're they're virtually the same as the uh, these committee chairmen of the Democrats. They're out to take take down Trump, (laughs) get Trump, get him, get him, take him. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was fascinated by Joel Farkas, uh, the single family, the attack on the single family dwelling in Minneapolis. And what that means, how they think they that solves the problem, it doesn't. And then how our conversation moved from that to, if you want a middle class, you have to inculcate certain values or virtues. And from that to his fabulous story about the development he did in Colorado. Single family houses, mostly minority, fascinating, worth listening to. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Time for a quick update on immigration with Mark Krikorian. He's the world's expert. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark, the president's message, what's right, what's wrong, what should he be saying, what should he be doing that he's not doing? The president used the wall as a shorthand for tougher immigration enforcement overall, and that was very effective during the campaign. Uh, The problem, of course, is that it also kind of handed the Democrats a weapon against him because by denying him money for extra border barriers, they can uh, stymie him and be seen as frustrating his immigration agenda, when in fact, there's actually more to it than just border barriers. And so to the extent the president, I think, would be wise to uh, adapt his message a little bit would be to 
talk about all the other stuff along with the wall when uh, when talking about it. Now, he did, I give him credit, his talk last week, um, his talk from the Oval Office, in fact, mentioned the wall last in a you know series of policy items that he was asking for. And that was a smart thing to do, because what it did was make clear that the wall was one tool was a part, an important part of what he wants, but not the whole thing. Um, other than that, uh, you know, I think he needs to keep hammering the Democrats. And I would suggest moving away from the or or sort of downplaying the focus on crime, because, yes, there's immigrant crime. There's no question about it. Illegal immigrants, obviously, um, any crime they commit are all avoidable because they shouldn't be here in the first place. But I think it would be useful for the president to say, look, here's all these stories of immigrant criminals and American victims and all that. But even if every person trying to sneak across the border were Mother Teresa, we would still need to have border enforcement because our national sovereignty demands it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But then I'm not running the president's communications yeah. operation. So what do I know? I didn't win the presidency, so what do I know? Right. No, I agree. And same, what you said about criminals would, would apply to the dr- drugs, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, again, it's not that it's not important. It's just that, you know, it's you got to make clear that's not the whole story. Right. Okay. Is the wall, physical barrier, useful and valuable, at least in some places? Oh, absolutely. I mean, no we question. have okay. we have hundreds of miles, something like 300 miles along the 2,000 miles of border of real wall. Now they call it pedestrian barriers. In other words, they're designed to keep people out because we have about an equal amount of what are called vehicle barriers, which are you know three feet high, designed to keep trucks from driving over. But they don't stop people. People just hop under them or over them. I mean, your grandma could get over them. I've got pictures of myself clowning around on these vehicle barriers all along the border. So so there are places we definitely need real fencing, um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it uh, this whole semantic thing about is it a fence, is it a wall is sort of irrelevant, it seems to me. It's, it's kind of a game. The question is, is there a physical thing at the border making it hard for you to get across. Uh, And the important thing to understand is that nobody from the Border Patrol on thinks that a wall is something that you can just kind of build and then forget about because you need to not just maintain it, but you need to police it. When people try to get over, you need to respond and get them before they get across, that sort of thing. In other words, it's a tool to slow down and frustrate people trying to get across, and it is a useful tool but it's not a magic bullet. And I think too many people, some of the people supporting it, but also some of the people opposing it are describing it as, you know, a magic bullet, a sort of set it and forget it kind of thing. And that's just not the way the real world works. Let me ask you about the, the politics of this. We want to do what the right thing is, but on another agenda, I mean, to, in order to get it done, you know, Lincoln said public opinion is everything. I was listening to the president's brilliant strategist from 2016, and he's, I guess, going to be the strategist for 2020, Brad Parscall or Parscale. And he was saying this is the number one issue, immigration, the border, America, American sovereignty. If that's the case and he needs to get this done, quite apart from winning a re-election, because, but because it's important to the country, 
why are the polls showing that it's not so popular or do we just not believe the polls? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I think polls usually, you know, tell us something. And I think, um, you can't the, take encouragement from these polls right now. Yeah, no, you can't take encouragement from the polls. On the other hand, I'm not sure how um, intense people's uh-huh. feelings are on this. In other words, if the Democrats, that. if the Democrats cave uh, and the president wins, then you know all the people who are saying, "Well, this really isn't worth it," will say, "Yeah, okay, well, whatever," and move on to the next thing. You know what I mean? In other yes. words, it really is winning creates its own public support. So winning in a fight, an inside-the-beltway fight, um, deals with this. It's not as though defending America's borders is something the public strongly objects to. What they object to, I think, what you're seeing in those polls is this sort of, geez, these politicians, can't they all get along and what's the matter with them kind of attitude. You know what I mean? So that's a very different thing from people saying they don't want border enforcement. That's why I think it is important for the president to win this, even though I'm pessimistic, just because I'm by personality pessimistic, because the stakes are larger than just whether we have an extra 100 miles or so of steel slats. Uh, if the Democrats win this, they're going to be emboldened to pursue the rest of their anti-immigration agenda, which is pretty clear. They want, they're going to want to cut funding so that they have to fire ICE agents. They're going to cut funding so that there'll be fewer detention beds, less space to hold illegal aliens. They have to let more of them go, let them go inside the country. Uh, and that's their goal. And if they win this, they're going to pursue that more aggressively. If they lose, they'll be somewhat chastened. So my point is, this is the stakes here are larger than what the poll questions are asking the public about. But if the Democrats are looking at the polls, they're not going to be highly incentivized, I would think, to, to buckle right now. I, 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 I agree, frankly. Um, and it's even more than that. The Democrats are obsessed with preventing the president from getting a win on this um, just because it's his most important yep. uh, specific goal. And stymieing him in this, is it really is a kind of obsession with them. So that it's you know going to be hard for them to uh, cut a deal. The problem, I mean, the, the other side though is that you know Captain Ahab was obsessed with getting the big white yeah. whale, and the Democrats' obsession with the big orange whale uh, <laughs> may end up destroying them in the same way. I mean, I don't know, but there's already cracks in the Democratic facade uh, because they only took the majority because they won in a bunch of swing districts and Republican districts, the majority in the House. And those congressmen who won are not kooky Bolsheviks like Ocasio-Cortez. They're people like the uh, former CIA officer who beat Dave Bratt down in Virginia. She's already complained at Democratic caucus meetings that her voters are saying, you know, are the Democrats serious about border enforcement? What's going on here? Well, I want to cue off that. Do they have... In their opposition, you don't see much of a sense of their idea of limits to immigration. Do they have a... No. I wrote a piece in NR about this a while back, that the Democrats say that they're not for open borders. They say, you know, it's it's a slur to refer to us as open borders party. But every single measure that involves limiting immigration or enforcing immigration laws, they're against. Okay. 
If, so if, if you're against all measures to enforce borders, then uh, as the Marxists would say, objectively speaking, you're for open borders. Yeah. And that is part of the message I think the president needs to hammer and not just say they're for open borders, but say, look, they're against this, against this, against this, and against that. What the heck are they for? And would you also agree, again, apart from doing the right thing, because it's the right thing, that this is or could be number one issue in an election in 2020? Sure. I mean, obviously, it depends on what events happen over the sure, next sure. year and a half, you know, but absolutely. Yeah, it could. And but it, one of the reasons it's so important in 2016, likely to be in 2020, and is so important in many European elections, too, is that immigration is, in a sense, itself a kind of shorthand for national identity and national sovereignty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what's under assault, not just by, you know, uh, Muslim terrorists from Syria or what have you, but just more broadly, globalization is threatening the coherence of and the sovereignty of the nation state. Right. And immigration policy is one of the places that's manifested most clearly, which is why it becomes politically so important and salient, not just here, but in Italy and England and France and elsewhere. And also another reason why the message needs to be broadened from just criminals and drugs. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I remember a discussion I had with you more than a year ago uh, in which you reminded me, because we were talking, I know we were talking about Sierra Club stuff and concern about stuff at the border and the mess that uh, illegal immigration makes. And I said, well, isn't Sierra Club in charge of the Democrat Party? And you said, putting it in the shorthand, nope, the immigration lobby is the most powerful part of the Democratic Party. Is that still the case? That's certainly my sense. And I don't know if it's in the sense of institutionally, in other words, the uh, organizations that push for it are the most important. It's the issue is most important. Uh -huh. um, okay. I wrote a piece that Years ago, Catherine Lopez at National Review made me change the headline, but I called it Immigration Uber Alles, or Open Borders Uber Alles, because <laughs> for each, I, I looked at various instances where immig open immigration had conflicted with other democratic goals, um, whether it's environmental protection or population control, unions, um, you know, the interests of black Americans, all of this, and immigration always won. In fact, the most shocking example, I think, was uh, the ACLU. I guess it's not shocking anymore, but um, in New York years ago, some guy had put up post uh, billboard about uh, immigration. It was very anodyne. It was like a picture of a kid and said, you know, immigration will double America's population in my lifetime. You know, is that a good idea? Something very anodyne. Um, the city of New York, the city government, came to the owner of the billboard and they said, we are coming down on you like the wrath of God unless you take this billboard down. It was explicit censorship of political speech. The guy who put it up went to the ACLU and the ACLU, which remember, had defended Nazis waving their profanities yeah. in the face of Holocaust survivors. Uh, the ACLU said, yeah, you know, that is a case of political censorship, but, you know, we have a lot of immigrant rights people, so we're going to have to pass on this one. Okay. I All mean, right. it was shocking when okay. I heard that. So the is issue cast correctly, made correctly, and um, with the real stakes uh, presented uh, is uh, profoundly important and also a political plus. Absolutely. And, um, but, you know, those are, that's a lot of ifs, too. I know, you know what I mean? So, a lot of ifs, a lot of ifs. Uh, I mean, right the immigration there. isn't go the issue isn't going away. Right, so, sure. in the long run, I'm optimistic. I'm just pessimistic in the short run. In other words, the president could screw it up. He's a flawed man in yeah, all kinds yeah, of ways, yeah. maybe even more than the rest of us. 
Um, but even if he completely screws it up, and I don't know, Kamala Harris ends up being elected president, the issue isn't going away. It's going to come back again with someone else. Oh, um, I was hoping your long run was like a year, not four years. Oh, no, no. I'm four, eight, twelve. No, no. Look, I'm Armenian. I mean, uh, uh, I, I grew an up old, on... No, you're an Old yeah. Testament prophet is what you're... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, go ahead. yeah. No. I, I grew up on the defeat of St. Vartan and his 1,036 <laughs> champions in 451 <laughs> AD. So so I have a longer timeline, I Still think. smarting not, from I'm that, not, are you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite like Joe Enlai, who's uh, right. supposedly went... I don't know. Was, was it, yeah, it was Joe Enlai. He's asked, uh, what do you think of the French Revolution? He said, well, it's too early to tell. It's too early to tell. All right. Yeah. All right. It's an apocryphal story, but it's too good to check. This is excellent. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for being available and being who you are. Thank you. Anytime, Bill. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now is Conrad Black, author and non-affiliated member of the House of Lords. Conrad, welcome back to the show. Yes, sir. How are you today? All right. How are you? You lost in the snow or something? (laughs) We We haven't had it up here. Oh, my gosh. What do we do? We need some help here. Yeah, I know. I've always thought that New York can stand anything except the snow. Right. No, I I say I was in North Carolina for several years. And when it snowed there, I remember saying the greatest threat when a snowstorm comes is your fellow man. People got in their cars and drove home as fast as they could, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Once you're used to dealing, I was brought up in Quebec and, you know, you can... You can you can handle us. No, you just have to know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still not used to it here, except our Minnesota friends, Wisconsin friends. So, sir, people like that, you know, they know all about it. I, we often talk about domestic things, but you did a great uh, essay on the resurgence of America in the world, which is so unlike the gloomy gust talk we're getting from you know a lot of the media about how we've destroyed re- relations with the rest of the world. Our standing is low. We're very unpopular. And I wanted to talk well, to you about well, that's it. That's just public relations. The world likes weak U.S. presidents like Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama who collegialize everything and are overly deferential to slack allies who don't pull their weight other than when there's a real threat and all of a sudden they want they want somebody strong yeah but, uh, uh, but in the so-called chancellor is as they used to be called anyway in the places in the foreign offices of the world people may you know may go out to lunch and complain about the gaucheries of the US president or some of his people but everybody knows that the United States is asserting itself, and a great many people are actually reassured by that. You know, you started you started this by um, talking about the economy of the U.S. I did not know this. You wrote in the eight years of President Obama, the U.S. lost 219,000 manufacturing jobs. In the two years of Trump, the country has added 477,000 manufacturing jobs. That's really something. That's the Bureau of Commerce. It's not. It's not. The Republican National Committee. Really? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> it just came up as a statistic on, uh, I think, on Thursday, and I thought this was astounding. But well, you remember all through the election, um, you know, all these all these leftist economists like Krugman and so on said, well, what Trump is saying is nonsense. You'll never get any manufacturing jobs back and so forth. I mean, I, I think people in all the, in all the, uh, the, the sort of uh, the country fair razzmatazz the Washington Post puts on about counting up to now 7,600 lies that he's done. Uh, the, the basic fact is, I, mean, I think we're just about the same vintage. And I, I go back to Eisenhower's time, and I've not seen any president who 
has so faithfully done what he promised to do as this one has. That's right. Right. No, if you if you go by promise keeping, uh, doing what you said you were going to do, or at least trying to, well, he gets he gets great grades on doing it, and um, you know very good grades on some of the big ones he hasn't been able to get done because he needs the help of other people. What he's been able to do by himself, he has done. There's no question. So, when when the economy is resurgent, as you describe. Is it is it good for America because it strengthens our hand? The stronger we are, the better. Is it also good for the world? Generally, it is good for the world. It's not quite as good for the world as in previous regimes where, uh, let us face facts, during the Cold War and, and for a time afterwards, uh, it was part of American foreign policy to allow a balance of payments deficit in order to support the French and Italian luxury goods industries and the German and Japanese engineered product industries. So those were, you know, four key and politically very important um, traditional great powers, uh, three of, well, three of whom had fairly strong leftish or neutralist elements within them. And and it, it was a legitimate it was using the American economy as a legitimate tool to keep the alliance in good condition. But once that ceased to be possible, like all these policies, it has a momentum of its own until somebody says, wait a minute, why are we doing this? And, and then, and then it, it shifts. But the, still, the fact is, the stronger the U.S. consumer and, and the more attractive the U.S. is a, as a place for investment, that is generally a good thing for the world, absolutely. Let's go around the world. Let's start with something that happened since the publication of your essay. I'd love to hear you on it. I actually got calls from a colleague, a former colleague, uh, who works now at State Department, uh, a writer, who's very much interested in getting some more attention, which we, which we gave it here, uh, to the uh, Secretary of State Pompeo's visit. Uh, to the Middle East and his speech there where he said, we're not doing it Obama way, we're doing it our way. Did you notice that and uh, have any comment on that? Yes, and, and I I thought it I thought it was a very profound speech. Yeah. I, I took the for me relatively unusual step of trying to get the text of it from the state, you know, and it is accessible online. And um, I thought that he was I thought it was very interesting, and, and you know, customarily, administrations don't become that critical of previous administrations right. overseas. Right. Um, and the Secretary of State, while he obviously supports the president whom he serves, isn't normally that partisan a figure. But um, uh, so that was interesting. Now, in, yeah, in the I'm circumstances, here, I'm here to repudiate what Obama did. Uh, you know, that's that's what he said. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. If, if what Obama said uh, nine, ten years ago, I, I'm that's all bunk. Don't pay any attention to it. Right. And um, to analyze the speech, it seemed to me that it, it was uh, celebrating the fact that since the traditional or at least ancient enemies of the Arabs, the Turks and the Persians, were now infringing on them again. Uh, and he was fairly careful about how he put this, but, but I got the implication that, that this meant that um, the Arabs could largely join hands, including with the Israelis, and and keep these powers uh, from from intruding excessively in, in the Arab world, and uh, that it was not a particular concern of the United States what 
sort of regime did this as long as normal standards of civility were observed. Now, did you, is that am I being unfair? Or am I attributing to him what I what I would say if anyone asked, which no one ever would, of course, asked me to make such a speech, or or, or, or do you think that's what he said? I think that that is what he said, and it was quite explicit. And they wanted to be. They wanted everyone to know what the message was and uh, clear and uh, forceful. I had I, I had ta- I had spoken with then uh, Congressman Pompeo several times on radio show, but I uh, hadn't met him until a recent uh, dinner party just before Christmas. Got a chance to talk with him for a while. Was very impressive, very smart, and uh, extremely um, tough on these things. And uh, you know he doesn't he doesn't need to take uh you know muscle lessons from uh, from the president uh this was a very strong speech a repudiation uh yeah we're going to do it in a different way from obama you bet um and we mean business no question about it i i guess uh, there was a bit of sorting out to do on this syria thing i mean you know to hear the yes, sir there was the Democratic alarmists, you, you, you'd think it was like um, President Kennedy saying he was withdrawing from Europe in 1962 and pulling out 350,000 men. I mean, you know, we are we are talking about uh, three or four battalions here. You know, we're not talking about, uh, uh, you know, but Patton's Third Army or something. No, I think there was uh, he fixed it. I mean, I think he he overstated um, and then fixed it. Uh, I think probably thanks to the counsel of of Pompeo in part and Bolton, from what I heard. But that's fine, you know. Um, look, he's indicated his uh, his his interest in withdrawing U.S. troops when when you can. Uh, this is this is part of again part of what he ran on. Uh, back to your point about promise keeping, but I but I think uh, he was he was told to do so. You know, with everybody would be precipitous. So uh, it's got a different pace now, and I think a different shape. Yeah, and and uh, you know, when those things happen, he's right to say, "Well, that's what I said in the first place." You know, he shouldn't he shouldn't sort of turn it into a confession. Yeah, absolutely, say, that's uh, what I mean. CNN is, that's yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah. Yep. Well, you 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 know what? It's Roosevelt kept making you know, really putting the neutrality concept to the shredder and. You know, saying we'll lend lease, we'll give the British and Canadians whatever they want, but we've extended coastal waters from three miles to 1,800 yeah. miles, and I told the Navy to attack any German submarines on detection. And someone would say, Well, Mr. President, is that neutrality? He said, Well, of course it's neutrality. Yeah, course I mean, it <laughs> you, just have to, you just have to stick to it. You just have to have an imagination, understand the <laughs> plain meaning of words. Let's, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm so encouraged, and uh, I look forward to spending some more time with him. Um, let's go around the world a little bit. Uh, China, because you talk about China here, and you, interesting, I think you had a line like the greatest, what, economic uh, uh, rise in, in, in human history or something. Quite- as a, as a uh, development story for an underdeveloped country, I think it is. I think it's a From underdeveloped to developed, yeah. Yes, I think it's an amazing thing. But you don't. You, you. But that doesn't equip you to go into the ring for 15 rounds with the United States, which has been the leading economic power in the world for over a century. And and uh, and uh, there are, you know, the, the one of the problems China has is you can't believe one number that they publish. That's why it's not really in any of these international organizations because they they, they don't conform to verifiable standards and. 
uh, everyone knows that there are colossal internal debt levels in China, that, that this buildup has essentially been based on infrastructure, uh, and, 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 and that it is still 40% a command economy. And the Chinese are not docile people. And, you know, they, as I say, there's no doubt of the strength of China and the, and the amazing achievement that they have. But it's not a country that's rich in resources. It has to import a great deal. Yeah. And the United States, if you gave it one year to retool and reorient, would not have to import anything. I mean, it literally doesn't have to import anything except maybe a few rare earths or things like that. And it, it simply doesn't have to stand for a deficit like that. Yeah. And China could make all the belligerent noises they want and, uh, you know, get all their acolytes in the West fluttering on about how, how the, their face-saving requirement wouldn't permit them to make concessions. But the fact is they have to make some concessions or they are going to have chronic financial problems. I, um, I, I, I spent a week uh, talking to a lot of people uh, on the Hill and some people close to the president, and I will, I will tell you this. There were people who were skeptical of the president's uh, move here on these tough trade negotiations early on who are now feeling much more bullish, saying, yeah, he, he knew what he was doing, uh, and are feeling that uh, you know we're in the, he's in the catbird seat uh, in these negotiations, or at least... Uh, you know, uh, the United States is doing quite well, as it should be. And this is part of resurgence as well. This is what I picked up from just a number of conversations. Go ahead. Sorry. Which the economist, which was for a long time, really an outstanding magazine has now become a, yeah. an almost unreadable bit of nonsense. Yeah, what happened? I used to subscribe. I loved that magazine. Yeah, well, it, 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 somewhere in there, it, it just it just went all the way for that eurocentric globalist uh, planned economy uh, low growth 2% the new normal they just took the whole thing you know okay. and and trade was really a, it wasn't really trade so much as it was a development plan to export industry to other countries and import unemployment as an act of generosity into the countries, the developed countries, and they just they just drank the Kool-Aid. Well, and they particularly take this sort of arch British club dislike to the gaucheries of the present as they perceive them as present. Yeah. And, uh, but even they said that, that China had, in fact, backed down. And their latest headline I saw, I don't always read the story, but it was Trump has had a success, though he doesn't deserve it. You know, I mean, it's the most, oh, yeah, it, it's the worst type of, of British snobbery making an inelegant retreat, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's not sort of the, it's not Dunkirk where you you know yeah. you snatch yeah. something from the jaws of death and say uh, you know th th this is no triumph wars aren't won by evacuations Mr. Churchill said it, it, it's uh, well everything that we said would not happen has happened but it's undeserved and it won't last you know sort of a cranky little child's response. One of the responses we're getting now a lot is, well, even the broken clock is right twice a day, to which I've been suggesting people are going to have to say, well, even a broken clock is right 14 to 16 times a day <laughs> in order to do justice to the president, you know, the broken yeah. clock president. <laughs>
Yeah, or, or, or uh, that, if you wind the clock, it's actually generally right. And, yeah. But even even a even a even a clock that works well occasionally, Let you me, know, falls behind. I want to go to go to Europe. But before that, I'm just thinking. I used to, you know, I'd get the Economist, I'd put it in my briefcase, and read cover to cover uh, on an airplane just to get up on what was going on in the world. Don't do that anymore. Can't trust it. What do you What do you read for the, my benefit? Benefit of the listeners? How do you How do you What do you read to keep up on the world? Or is it several well, things? I, I, Probably I several things. The, I read the Wall Street Journal, and um, and then I I move around. The internet a fair bit, and uh, uh, you know if you if you start with real clear politics, and then you if you and then if you focus in, you go country by country in their different sites. You know, for old times' sake, I looked at the Daily Telegraph site in Britain, and and it, it, its portrayal of British politics remains uh, fair and perceptive as it was when we had that paper, and uh, and there's you, you know there are different sites for different countries and. Um, it, it, it's and, and then you get used to certain writers that that are perceptive. And I, I the only foreign language I speak is French because it's a, you know it's an official language in this country. And and um, and there are some good French sites too, and they always have some interesting reflections on other countries. And uh, so you know it, it's sort of erratic though. You get these digests like Real Clear Politics that put up quite a variety of things. Yep. And, and and so you could you you know you've just got to look around a bit. But the the old days that we remember, where you pick up your favorite newspaper or magazine like The Economist and go right through it, and you've got most of what you want. Those days have gone. Yeah, they're gone. Okay, good. That's reassuring. It's more difficult, uh, but uh, okay. Let's go to Europe. It's still not Europe. bad about some individual countries that you don't much hear about. I mean, they're often very good on parts of South America, for example, but but uh, on, on commenting on the United States, they are hopeless. And, and one of the great ironies of the relationship the U.S. has with, uh, with the other English-speaking countries, especially Great Britain, is I don't think the British have ever understood the United States, even the ones who were in the U.S. a lot and could explain parts of it, like Alistair Cook and my late friend David Frost. I don't think that politically, I don't think they ever understood the country. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, we have about five, seven minutes left. Let's go to American resurgence and, and Europe. I found what you had to say there most interesting in terms of its effect on France, England, Germany, etc. By the way, did what? you notice... Um, I don't want to get off into what we call a rabbit trail on radio here, but I'd love your comment on this. Bernie Sanders and other socialists commenting on, no, no, we don't want Venezuela. We want Scandinavia. We want Norway and Finland and Sweden. That's what we want. Yeah, well, you know, Norway is $75,000 per capita annual income. It's 4 million people. It's a sort of northern Kuwait, you know. <laughs> I mean that's that's fine, Bernie, but that's not the configuration of the U.S. demographically. Like Vermont, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Except they elect more sensible people than Bernie Sanders yes, they do. sadly. Yes, they do. Well, look, I, 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 we're all waiting for Germany to behave like the greatest power in Europe in a responsible way, and the last time they did that was Bismarck. And after that, we got you know the emperor completely out of control and giving us World War One. Then you had a subjugated Germany. Then we had the Third Reich, uh, and then the Adenauer and all, all the federal chancellors before the reunification were, were very uh, sensible and reasonable and good allies. 
and and now it, it's just in Mr. Nixon's phrase, the pitiful, helpless giant. I mean, it's sold itself, as President Trump said, in energy terms, to dependence on this yeah. gangster state of Russia, which is, does not have a fraction of the of the strategic importance the old Soviet Union had, and and uh, and and it will not spend anything on defense. And neutralism is rising. There's only one party that can govern, and it can barely maintain its position. And the opposition in Germany, except for the Free Democrats, are, are a bunch of parties that should not be anywhere near a government. Yes. And it, 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 it's a worrisome situation. It's yes. what the late Helmut Kohl was always afraid of. And this dreadful uh, mistake on the immigration business, right? That, that, that was a tragic mistake, very well-intentioned. I think you, I admire the Chancellor Merkel's, uh, what, what she was trying to do. But, yeah. but, but you know, she's running, she's running for chancellor, not for sainthood. Yeah, think it through. Yeah. Now, in France, uh, you know, we all hoped Macron would be – he's obviously something altogether new, and, and we all hoped that would be a good thing. But he's just he, – essentially, he said, it is a simple matter to have everything we want. We want to go all in for uh, fighting adversities of climate change, which is a very fuzzy area that we don't really know much about. Uh, if it really exists at all. And we want to go all in for Euro integration, which absolutely nobody in, in Europe actually wants to do, and certainly not in France. I mean, even Mitterrand, with all this skullduggery and chicanery, only, only won his referendum by about half a point. I mean, I don't know what Macron was talking about. And and um, uh, and we'll we'll have it all at once because we're a new broom sweeping clean. We'll, you know, that's the sort of thing you might get winning a, a mayoral election in Paducah, Kentucky or something. But you can't govern France that way. Boulevards are still burning as we speak. Right? <laughs> They've seen it all before. <laughs> you know, they, uh, you know, De Gaulle used to say, well, look, uh, you either accept my conditions or I'm going back to my village and the socialists and communists can fight it out with the paratroopers. I mean, you know, that's where you are. You know, they, 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 they pitched the government 20 times in 200 years. So. You know, I, I don't mean I don't mean in an election. I mean in an, in an irregular manner. And um, and uh, you, you know, De Gaulle said, "How do you govern a country with 227 types of cheese? It's just a hard country to govern." <laughs> Let's wrap up with uh, Great Britain. You said uh, a few minutes ago they didn't understand America. Americans, do they understand themselves. Do the leaders understand what what the people want in Great Britain? Um, it, it's factionalized, and and each faction has has some forceful leadership. So in that sense, yes. I, I think that it was a terribly difficult question for the British because it, it, it was, they do like to be law-abiding. They do want to be friendly with Europe. Uh, they're, they're, they're not as wedded to overseas connections as they were historically, but they cannot stand this deluge of ridiculous and authoritarian instructions on what they must do. And, and, um, you mean from Brussels and, uh, yeah, from Brussels. Brussels. I mean, the Germans don't mind regimentation and the right. French and Italians 
just ignore governments anyway. They just think they're a bloody nuisance and the hell with them. And uh, but the, <laughs> the British are not like that, you see. So, <clears throat> and and this was always going to be the weakness. And I used to say this. I was talking to Henry Kissinger yesterday, and we were reminiscing that year after year at Bilderberg and the Trilateral Commission. I would say to these people, well, you're going to get to a phase where it's not a democracy, where Brussels isn't answerable to the main sovereign states right. within it. Right. And it isn't answerable to that, to, to that parliament in Strasbourg that has no authority. And then you're going to have problems, and that's what's happening. And I, I think Mrs. May deserves credit for keeping the ship more or less on course up to now. She's no Margaret Thatcher, but meanwhile, she, she's, she's getting them there. And if Brussels doesn't make a few more concessions... I think you'll get a resolution of British opinion, uh, uh, really with a serious, clear majority, just to get out. If they do make some concessions, not a lot of concessions, but some, I think you'll get a, a clear majority to accept a much better thing. The one thing that will not happen and cannot happen is Britain just folds it up and goes back to the way it was before. Uh, would you tell us? What? I think Britain will come through this more clearly than Germany and France in the next couple of years. But his, politically, it's been a much more stable country than those two. The journalist in me, excuse the expression, for a former philosophy teacher, but uh, anything else you can tell us about your conversation with Henry Kissinger? <laughs> his view of the world, his view of Donald Trump? His view he, of he says that um, <clears throat> it scandalizes dinner parties he attends, but he thinks that in policy terms, he, he he really only comments on foreign policies, you know. Sure. And on policy terms, uh, he thinks Trump has the potential to be a very successful president. He, <laughs> he, he says guess, this, this, it's great. this has a galvanizing effect whenever he says it. It's great. That's great. Yeah, maybe an op-ed. Encourage him, Conrad, would you? Please. I do I do my best. But hey, look, he's, he, he, he's a joy to, to those of us who, are, who generally support the president. He's a joy to talk to. Great. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, it's time to catch up with Joel Farkas, a director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Okay, uh, first of all, I want to talk to you about single-family dwellings in Minnesota. I'm not sure I understand. You'll have to explain it to me in the audience. But what is your governor doing here? <laughs> got the governor of California. Which one? Governor of Which California. one? California or Colorado? Well, your Colorado <laughs> governor is running for president. Hickenlooper, right? <laughs> Well, there's a new one, uh, uh, Governor Jared Polis, who was uh, who was a I'm sorry, I'm behind the uh, times. There, okay. <laughs> he just got elected, and he he came out with the same agenda as the governor in California. Uh, you know, Is it climate? Yeah. <laughs> Taxing water uh, and climate and and what? I mean, is there a is there a, a symphony going on here? Bill Blasio, De Blasio, New York. He's running. He said we got to pay for everything, health care for everybody, and Medicare for everybody, and and I, 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 you know what's going on here with the with the Democrat Party. It's the race to be who's most politically compassionate. Okay. Um, okay. We. Uh, we, we watched, uh, uh, you know, we've been talking about, you know, housing issues and homelessness and poverty, which uh, which pervade uh, California and New York. I, I, I don't think it was lost on many people with the response to President Trump's uh, Oval Office address, 
the two people standing up there rebutting him were from New York and San Francisco, California. And uh, that's that's basically the Democratic Party. Um, that's the largest population other than Texas in the in the country. And those that's they would prefer they prefer to quit calling things flyover states. They'd rather just have the western United States be California, the eastern United States be New York, and just uh, tell everyone to sit down and be quiet. So uh, these things that uh, the new governor there is proposing are going to cost money, right? Well, it's going to cost oh. Tens of trillions of dollars. Yes, it's money. Um, the issue is is how much and, and the amount of money. Uh, the amount of money is just staggering. It's it, it is so staggering the, the cost of these kinds of things. And what, what are these things? There, it's not just climate change. It's uh, free tuition. It's health care for all. It's guaranteed minimum wages. Uh, you know to deal with what's called wage inequity and all those things. It's so, so much money. Even the even the, the progressive liberal governor of the state of Washington, Governor Inslee, uh, is, is, push, is saying, let's focus just on climate change and, and take everyone's money for that. But okay. we can't do all these other things because it's so politically outrageously expensive it won't work. Amazing. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a race to see who can spend the most and, and appear to be the most compassionate. Just to jump ahead, I, I was listening to Brad Parscale, Parscale, strategist for President Trump's 2020, and he mentioned that he thought immigration and the wall would be a, a, the dominant issue. But then he said, uh, he was asked, why do you seem so confident? He said, because the Democrats are just racing to the left, just racing to the left. Anyway. We'll see. Tell us the story. I, I just don't want to miss this. The, t the story of single-family homes in Minneapolis and why this is important. Well, um, we've talked many times about you know severe, chronic, uncontrollable homelessness and poverty uh, in big, major metropolitan areas, predominantly in California, predominantly in New York, but also in Seattle, Washington, and also in places like Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, those urban areas where the progressive left and all the, uh, you know, the, the new urbanists like Richard Florida have been talking for 20 some odd years. Everyone needs to go to those cities because that's where the most wealth is, the most knowledge is, the most diversity uh, lies. Well, they also have the highest homelessness and poverty rates in, in the country. So what's the solution? Well, Minneapolis, Minnesota just presented to council, and it's probably going to get approved, um, we're going to, in, in, in Minneapolis, going to try to eliminate any single-family housing whatsoever. And where there, where there is single-family housing, they want to convert it to higher-density housing. And the basic premise is single-family housing has been a tool for racism and segregation in, in America. My, my God, I, I, I can't even believe I'm saying that, but I'm just repeating what they're saying. More whites own homes than minorities. Okay. More whites okay. own homes than blacks, more okay. uh, uh, Hispanics and the like. That's true. More whites do own homes. But uh, you and I have been talking about the answer to that is have more minorities own homes. Yeah. Uh, because Has, hasn't there been a surge in that as well over the last 30, 40 years? 
there has been a surge of that, but it hasn't been in Minneapolis or L.A. or San Francisco or Seattle. It's been in the rest of the country where, where people have figured that out. Middle-class Americans have figured out that they can go other places and find a place where they can live with other people who are, quote, middle class, and they own a home, and they have a family, and they put their kids in school. But I've been developing communities for 35-plus for, for years, and most of the time when I've been to a jurisdiction like you know, Minneapolis, you know, places like that, urban areas, they would always say, do not, I don't want you to build a single-family house because I want open space. I want parks. I want uh, to preserve the environment. I want to preserve, uh, you know, some certain animals and the like. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would live long enough to hear someone say, single-family houses are segregationist and racist. I, I really, truly never imagined that that would be the argument. I, I'm not That's seeing the, the picture here. I'm not, I'm not seeing, because there's homelessness and it's more common among minorities, you'll pick up homeless people on the street and move them into a multi-housing unit? Is, is that's not it, is it? <laughs> no. The, 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 uh, the reason you're not seeing it is because the argument's so darn absurd, it's hard to explain. But you start with a data point, more whites own homes than minorities. Okay. Go, Got it. it. They're racist. Okay. And, 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 and cities have segregated. Uh, uh, they took Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board of Education and segregated their city uh -huh. because of single-family homes that a poor person or a minority person could not buy. Um, that, that's, and then when you get to homelessness and poverty, um, and this, and, and by the way, this is exactly what is occurring in Seattle, Washington, where they have this, this thing called the Committee to End Homelessness. What's the plan to root out the cause of homelessness? Solving racism, solving wage inequity, climate change, uh, sanctuary cities, a green building. Uh, that's their plan to end homelessness. And in, in, in Minneapolis, the plan is, and it was, you know, there's this, uh, this author from University of California, or, or, or professor from University of California, who said, who wrote a book recently on a study, um, you know, the, the segregation and racism in zoning in the United States over the last hundred years. So, so she's been a, she's been a you know consulting person for the for Minneapolis to say, hey, here's how you here's how you solve it. Here's how you solve poverty, and here's how you solve homelessness, and here's how you solve racism. Get rid of single family detached housing. That's the thought. Makes it more possible <laughs> for people to afford a, a multi-family unit house. It's because it's cheaper. It is not cheaper. Well, what the difference is is you don't have to come up with a down payment. But the rent that you pay oh. in these hmm. big urban areas, the rent is similar to what you pay for uh, a, a home. But then what has happened in these big urban areas is they've stopped over the years, the last decades, they've stopped building single-family homes. So there, there isn't even a big supply of them. So the first tactic was stop building any more single-family homes. And then the follow-up tactic is those single-family homes which exist, let's get rid of them. Does that now, mean tear them down and put other place built structures in their place? Create new zoning laws so someone can come in and tear, some a builder or some person can come in and tear the, the single family home down and replace them with higher density housing. One thing we know, uh, which is an absolute unassailable, unassailable 
uh, irrefutable statistic. If you rent your the average net worth of, a, of, a, of an American citizen who rents, your net worth is probably less than $5,000. If you own a home in the United States, your average net worth is about $125,000. And there is a great disparity in terms of family wealth and family worth from an economic standpoint, if you own versus if you rent. Okay. Now, for whatever reason, I can't even surmise the progressive liberal socialist solution is get fewer people, even fewer people to own a home and get more people to rent. And 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 I, I, I cannot tell you why they think that that works. Crazy. But, um, just uh, crazy. But just that's what totally, they are doing. Totally crazy. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. You know, we, we, we actually, um, when I say we, America... America and, and, and people who study homelessness and poverty, this is not a new thing here in 2019. Uh, and, and there is a seminal, and this really goes back to all of our discussions on middle class and families and raising children and good schools. All of the topics you and I enjoy and, and, and love to love to discuss. But in, in, in 1994, there was a, a two, two people, two uh, academics wrote a paper, Alice Baum and Donald Burns, and it was entitled a, a, nation in, a Nation in Denial, The Truth About Homelessness. Who were the two authors? Alice Baum and Donald Burns. Okay. And I'll summarize the whole thing. And, and it's, 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 it's in a general. Homelessness is a condition of disengagement from ordinary society, from family, friends, neighborhood, church, and community. Poor people who have family ties, teenage mothers who have support systems, mentally ill individuals who are able to maintain social and family relationships, and they go on and on. They end with, they do not become homeless. These people do not become homeless. Homelessness is this disengagement from the community, from family, from friends, in the, in the neighborhood, in the church. And we all know what has been going on in, in, in the last 30 plus years about attacks on those institutions. Um, yeah. This is this is a well studied, well understood problem. The solutions in these coastal cities and these big urban areas are just are just deplorable solutions. And which is why I keep saying that if you were a middle class person living in those places, you're not welcome there. But there's dozens and dozens of other cities in the United States that will welcome you with what you think is, a, is an important yeah. value. Let's talk about some of them. Uh, we'll put a link up to this uh, article that you uh, that you sent us uh, from the New York Times, Minneapolis, tackling the housing crisis and inequity votes to end single family zoning. Really quite remarkable. But one of the other things you mentioned was talking to us about where are the American cities which have a middle class, 70% middle class. Yes, there there, there are. Um, and most people probably wouldn't have heard of these places, but there's a, I'll, I'll go through a list. Uh, West Jordan, Utah, 75% middle class population. West Valley, Utah, 72%. Livonia, Missouri, 70%. Uh, Surprise, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix, 70%. Um, Ontario, California, believe it or not, a city in California, uh, in the Inland Empire, uh, 68%. 
there are and, and the average middle class in America is, about, is plus or minus 50 percent overall throughout the country. There is a whole host of uh, uh, smaller uh, areas, smaller metropolitan areas, smaller jurisdictions, which have very, very high middle class citizenship and rates, very high, where it gets bogged down are places, again, like uh, L.A., San Francisco, New York. New York, you know, 20 some odd years ago, used to have more than 60 percent middle class in the city. Now it's uh, now it's in the 40s and it's declining. Um, and, 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 you know, in, in Silicon Valley, people who make four hundred thousand dollars a year in Silicon Valley view themselves as middle class because they cannot afford a home. So the place to go, and there is many places in the United States, uh, places where they have good schools, you can own a home, have good jobs, and you get to live in a community of people who share your values. Wow. And what is it they're doing? Is that the right question, Joel, that the places in L.A. and New York are not doing? Or what are the structural elements? Well, uh, what are they avoiding? What are they promoting? What are they doing? What are they not doing? So one of the best uh, best answers to that I can give you is what's, what does Seattle, Washington do to deal with their homelessness crisis? Seattle, Washington currently spends in King County about $1 billion, $1 billion with a B, dollars annually for homelessness uh, and, uh, and uh, programs and affordable housing type things. One billion. That's a hundred thousand dollars per every known homeless person in that in King County. One hundred thousand per year. The people who run their programs, they make close to two hundred thousand dollars a year. They employ about nine hundred people. Yeah. Their basic business in Seattle to solve homelessness is to set up an organization to create the ability to get federal matching funds and more city contracts to perpetuate their their organization. Yeah. Very little work goes into solving a homeless person's issue. Um, so to your question, that's what you don't do and shouldn't do. And what you do in these other places, you don't tell people, you don't discourage, or it's even beyond discouraging. It's basically telling someone, if you if you own and live in a single-family home, you're a racist segregationist. You don't yeah. do that. Uh, you encourage someone to buy a home. You encourage someone to be in a school district and participate in their community and their church and their neighborhood, send their kids to school, and um, and, that, and you encourage those values. That's what they are doing. Yeah, I, you know, it was no coincidence, right, that the first two places you mentioned are Utah, strong ethic, fa- strong family ethic, strong ad- self-advancement ethic, uh, strong schools, I know, from my work. No surprise there, right? Low drug use? None, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. Yeah. Um, areas around the country where it's not a pejorative to uh, have faith. It's not a pejorative to own a home. It's not a pejorative to uh, uh, to, you know, to to, to want to have a family, but to start a family, have a family, raise a family. None of those are pejoratives. Yeah. I remember a conversation I had, this little self-serving, excuse it, but... With Larry Kudlow years ago, who, when I was working in Power America, he said, I came in through the Kemp door, but I, 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 I ended up in the Bennett room, he said, because the key to the economic flourishing of the country uh, are those virtues that you're talking about and writing about. You know, self-discipline, perseverance, 
loyalty, fidelity, so on. Uh, well, I didn't invent them. I just wrote about them. But there, yeah. there is yeah. a deep and intimate connection here between succeeding, right, and making it in America, yes. making it in the middle class, yeah. and not. You know, we have what we call at, at the Brookings and Rand studies, the so-called success sequence. You know, you live in poverty, finish school, get a job, don't have children before you get married, and you live and you have a 95% chance at living at twice the poverty level. But the cultural signals are such that an awful lot of people don't succeed in doing that. And everything you said is well-written, well-discussed, yep. well-researched. Yep. The opposing argument to that is that the policies, the public policies that, that, that we are in some of these cities, like we're just talking about Minneapolis, Seattle, and the like, what they're subjected to is that, and, and this is the argument of, of, of the progressive academic who's promoting this, that local governments have pursued policies that enhance the wealth of white people, white property owners at the expense of people of color. And, and, and poor. So it, it is a, a us versus them, a, 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 a segregated racist uh, uh, you know, assault on people who are pursuing what you just said, pursuing something that's good, that's, that's, that's thoughtful, that's, that's helpful. And for some reason, the answer is because certain people have pursued something that it has to be at the expense of another. And why they can never, these academics, my God, they have tenure, why they can't easily see to have the same opportunity for those who are poor, people of color, minorities, which, as you said earlier, is happening right now in America. But why do they not see that allowing the opportunity for them to pursue the same things? Because it's obvious the argument is true. If you pursue those things that we just talked about, you succeed. Yeah. If that if that works, why not promote and encourage people of color and minorities and poor to do the same darn thing? Why not? Because as they criticize my wife, a conservative, for her work in the inner city schools, they say it's imposing a you know colonialist morality on on an oppressed people. That's what they say. Yes. That's what they say. It's cultural imposition. Uh, Charles Murray says, uh, you know, what, 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 what the upper classes, particularly liberals, don't do is they refuse to preach what they practice. In, in the 1990s, about the same time this uh, research paper was published by the two people I mentioned earlier, I, I began a, a development, a single-family home development the Denver metropolitan area, in an area which was about 70% African-American. Vacant piece of property, we built 1,100 homes over a period of about five years or so, five or six or seven years. And this all started in the mid-1990s. Now, the people who bought those homes at that time paid somewhere between $80,000 to $130,000 for their home. This was a long time ago, 30-plus years ago. And they were predominantly poor, poorer people. They were predominantly minorities. And they were living in a community like that. Within seven to ten years, those home values 
went from 80000 to 125000 or $30,000 to more than $300,000 wow. generally, 275000 to 300000 Now, if you just simply take 1,100 people, 1,100 families, and on, over, across the board, each one of them made about $100,000 on their home, that's more than $100 million of value and wealth created for those families in this community. And that's how you do it. Yes, sir. That's empirically how you create opportunities for others to benefit who hadn't had a chance. They would not have over 10 years if they were renting an apartment, created $100 million yeah, worth of value. Of I did not make that much. I didn't make close to that amount of money on that property. But we, <laughs> I'm just, I just yeah. uh, do not, I just don't agree with. And, 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 I, and I, I've, been, I've been around long enough to know I'm not going to convince a progressive liberal that what I am saying and what you and I are talking about uh, in terms of values and neighborhoods and communities and, and the like, they're not going to agree with us. They're not going to listen. They're not going to care. But there's enough people out here in America who are smart enough to know that they have these choices. They have these opportunities. Yeah. And, and, and those are the ones who I hope That's brilliant. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. I think we'll, we'll leave it right there. It's a great story. That does it for today's show, folks. Catch up on previous episodes, and you can do so by going to BillBennettShow.com. Claude, I need your help here. I think you can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. Yes. And you can like me on Facebook. Again, everyone. Mm-hmm. Just search Bill Bennett. Mm-hmm. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. We're so glad you joined us, folks.